Well, again, a happy Chinese New Year to each and every one of you. As many of you know, this is the year of the horse. And as we begin every new lunar year, everyone wants to start the new year right. We want to look for blessings. We want to look for happiness and joy. And we want to look for prosperity in this new lunar year. I don't know if any of you read Friday's Philippine Star. I happened to read it, and I was amused by an article written by Marites Allen. Uh, she was given a page and a half uh, uh, to write uh, her predictions for 2014. Marites Allen is the president and CEO of the World of Feng Shui Philippines, and that's the store in all the malls with the golden cat waving at you. Uh, she is apparently a master Hong Shui or Feng Shui expert, and so has been given a page and a half of important newspaper space to give us her predictions for 2014, the year of the so-called wooden horse. Uh, of course, I found this article quite amusing because if that is what it takes to be a Feng Shui master, anyone with common sense could be one. But I was amused that she said in 2014, this is a great year for new romances and marriage. So good news for all you singles out there. You don't have to wait another year to find romance. This is your year. Uh, if you're with someone, this year is a great year to get married because next year may not be so fortunate for you. Uh, and if you can't tell through my voice, I am being very sarcastic. She also predicts that in 2014, it is an auspicious year to have children as the heavens favor descendants. But I think to myself, every year is a good year to have children. I have never read a prediction. Please don't have children this year. Because if you have children this year, the child born to you will be a, a demon child. I like what she says about disasters. This year, by all indication, will be a year filled with earth and water-related disasters. I ask myself the question, are there any other types of disasters? It's either earth or water. But then the more I thought about it, there is one other type, the space-related disasters. And so, so don't worry, this year there are no giant asteroids that are going to hit the earth, if you were so looking forward to that. In the area of business, she writes, big business deals are more difficult, but closing several small deals is easier than one that is big. That's simply common sense. You can read that in any business textbook. Big business deals are much more complicated and therefore more difficult to close. I like this earth-shattering prediction she makes of the restaurant industry this year of the wooden horse. She writes, the restaurant industry will flourish. That's nothing new here in the Philippines. It's like me saying, I predict that this year, people will continue to eat at Jollibee and McDonald's. She writes, this is an excellent year for scholastic pursuits and opportunities for further education abound. Isn't that every year? What will next year's be? This is an excellent year to aim low and drop out of school. Woe that year. But then this one caught my eye. The eldest son will suffer from poor health and concentration 
and this must be quickly remedied. I am the eldest son. I will suffer poor health and concentration. I said, I better quickly remedy this, and I did, and I'm on a diet. And concentration-wise, I just turned off the TV. It's not the amulet that's going to help me remedy my problems. The sad part about this is that people actually believe this stuff. It is how they live their lives. When people refuse to believe in God, the one true God, they will believe in everything else. But all kidding aside, let me make a prediction for you that will be the case for each and every one of you. Regardless of how much you desire blessing this year in your life and how much you desire prosperity, the honest truth is that each of you will go through a period of pain and suffering this year. This is a fact of life. Life is about going from tears to tears, from one tear to another tear. That is what marks all life. And that's nothing we should be scared about, but something we should be aware of. Because in our times of pain and suffering, we can find great joy. And so we continue again this morning in our study of the book of Philippians in a series entitled Life in Color, Living Joyfully in All Circumstances. We previously defined joy as the assurance of happiness from a Christ-filled life looking from God's perspective. And we need to look from God's perspective to be able to see joy in times of pain and suffering. We've made mention of the fact that a defining mark of the Christian life is joy. So how then do we cultivate joy when we are suffering and we are in pain or we even experience death? If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1 as we look at verse 19 to verse 30. Philippians chapter 1 as we study verses 19 to verse 30. Studying how we can find joy in times of pain and suffering. Look what Paul writes in verses 19 to verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. As Paul continues his letter to the Philippians, he tells them that while he is currently in prison, he will eventually come to a point where he will be delivered. Now, the question we must ask is, what is this deliverance? Does Paul think he will be soon freed from the shackles of his imprisonment? I don't believe so. Based on the context of the succeeding verses, Paul is most likely referring to a spiritual deliverance. He says, whatever happens to me, Philippian Christians, don't you worry, because I will be delivered. The work of salvation will be completed by my glorification, the third phase of salvation spoken of in the book of Romans, and I will be delivered. Paul wasn't expected to be freed immediately, but he says, through your prayers, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who serves as an encouragement to me, I am encouraged to persevere. You see, in verse 20, it tells us Paul was not sure whether he would be martyred for his faith, whether he would die for his faith, or that he would be eventually released. 
But no matter what the case, Paul says very clearly, I want my life lived for the glory of God. I want Christ to be exalted, magnified in my life, whether by death or by life. You see, Paul had a very singular goal in his life. He had one purpose in his life. And the purpose of his life was to glorify God throughout his life, from birth all the way until death. In life and in death, he wanted his life to glorify God. And my friends, that is the first thing you need to know. If you want to cultivate a spirit to find joy in times of pain and suffering, you must have as your life's purpose and life's goal the glorification of Christ in your life. Paul was excited for what the future held for him. I don't know how many people in prison are excited about their future, but Paul was. He says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation, I'm excited. I want to see how my life will unfold. And the verb in Greek of earnest expectation has the idea of straining my neck to see what's beyond this. Paul says, I want to catch a glimpse of what's ahead. Paul was not afraid of looking forward. He didn't care what will happen to him. You know what he was looking forward to? You know why he was looking ahead in his life? He wanted to see if his life glorified Christ. If at the very last moment of his life that his life was lived, marked by the glory of God. Paul didn't care about the circumstances which the future held for him. He cared about leaving a great testimony. He was so excited. He wanted to make sure that at the end of his life, his life was about the glory of God. It's hard for many of us because many of us do not live for the glory of God. We have so many different purposes for why we live this life. I came across a great blog recently by a Grace alumni, Jeanette Ganaban, I believe she's batch 2003. She writes a blog entitled, Go Ahead and Leave. She was talking about her own personal experience about why she wondered so many people leaving her life, some leaving permanently as they've passed away, some because they've migrated to another country, some because of circumstances and distance have simply left. And she struggled with that. And she was left alone to think, why did they leave me? Why did this happen? How do I go on without them? She notes, very seldom you'll realize these questions should be answered differently. Change one word, and you'll change your perspective from overwhelming depression to overflowing joy. What is that one word? Instead of why, ask what. What did they leave me? And as she changes the question to what, all those who have left her, she says, they left me with unforgettable memories and experiences like no other. They left me with hope and excitement for the time we shall meet again. They left me with thanking the Lord for letting them share part of their lives with me. You see, my friends, you will experience separation, the pain of separation this year, separation of loss. But the question should not be why. The question should be what. 
And you may leave this year, leave this country, leave this city, leave this earth. And instead of asking, why God now, why? You ask him, what? What have I left behind? Have I left the life lived for the glory of God? Because to find joy in times of pain and suffering, you need one singular goal. The goal of leaving your life with someone else, the glory of Christ, whether in life or in death. What did you leave behind? What are you leaving behind? Whether it's a five-minute encounter or a lifetime journey with someone else. Yesterday, we had a wonderful time uh, in an outreach called Blitz Banawi. Blitz Banawi was a wild idea that came out of our Wednesday church staff meeting. We often talk about the purpose of this church, the vision of this church, and we were called primarily uh, to reach out to the Chinese community. The problem is many of us think the Chinese community lives so far away in Binondo, uh, and what a struggle it is to get there. But uh, as our city councilman and mayor want to portray, the second Chinatown is right here in Quezon City, right next to us in Banawi. And so we decided we wanted, as a church, to claim Banawi for Christ. And so uh, in a very quickly organized uh, outreach, we prepared 2,100 packs of candy with our church card inside to introduce our church to those uh, in the community. Praise the Lord for 35 people who responded uh, very quickly. And it was just neat. For two and a half hours, uh, you had uh, men and women of our church wearing red, uh, going from Maria Clara all the way to Sergeant Rivera, uh, from D. Tuasan all the way to Araneta, just introducing people, strangers, welcoming them to our church community. It was such a spiritual success that, uh, Lord willing, we'll have a bigger Blitz Banawi. Perhaps it will not only be uh, two and a half hours, but, but an entire weekend. And I hope when that challenge rings forth that all of you will be a part of this. I wish I could tell you all the stories that were shared as we debriefed and met together for lunch, a late lunch. But we began to share our experiences and, and what an experience it was. But there was one story that especially resonated with me. One of the volunteers is a high bank executive. And as she was passing out uh, these candy pouches with our church card inside, uh, she met one of her clients eating at a restaurant. Uh, the client remarked to her, Oh, so I see you're wearing another hat on the weekend. Essentially saying, you're a banker on the weekday, you're a Christian evangelist on the weekend. And that stuck with me for whatever reason. I said, wow, the impact that can be made both as a Christian banker and a Christian evangelist. And I, I wonder if that person who said it would eventually come to know Christ. I, I do hope so. And if that person came to Christ through the outreach of one person and through a, a church calling card that led them to discover and look more uh, into the Word, I wonder... If that person will say, I'm so glad that that person took out five minutes of their weekend to come and talk to me. You see, the question you need to ask yourself is, what am I leaving behind? Those five minutes of Christ-filled conversations so that you can leave the glory of Christ with someone else? Or journeying with someone in that season of life 
that moment, that day, that year, your life partner, your children, what are you leaving them? Hopefully when you are gone, they will not ask, why did they leave? They will ask, wow, look at the blessings they have imparted upon my life. What is your goal? What is your purpose in this life? Is it, that, is it to be lived for the glory of God? Well, we've talked about the goal that leads to joy in times of pain and suffering. We also need to talk about the perspective. The perspective we are to have so that we can have this goal. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you want to sum up Paul's philosophy of life, if you want to sum up this great apostle, uh, apostle's life verse, you could say, his outlook on life, his, his perspective, his ministry, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, if I live, I'm living it for Christ. And if I die, so be it. I will be with Christ, which is so much better. You see, for Paul, it's always about Christ. And the only way you can find joy amidst pain and suffering is with the perspective and the mindset that my life is centered on Jesus Christ. It's always about Him. It's always living my life to have more of Him. So whether I live or die, it doesn't matter. I'm leading towards getting more of Him to the point of death when I am with Him. You see, my friends... The reason we're scared of death and, 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 and pain and suffering is because all of these things involve loss. We lose something. We lose our freedom. We lose a loved one. We lose something we treasure. But if we're honest with ourselves, we are living for those things. That's why pain and suffering and, and death, it, 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 it hits us hard. Because we live for material things. We, we live for friends. We live for family. We live for fame and we live for fortune. But when the difficult times hit, there is loss. But you know what? This great truth. If your life is a li life lived for Christ, there will never be loss. There is no such thing as loss when you live your life for Christ. Because even in death, you get more of Christ. You get to go to His loving embrace. See how that should change your perspective? I know that's a deeper idea, which you need to go back home and digest. In Christ, there are no losses. You only get more of Him, even in death. And so if I lose anything materially in life, it's no matter because I'm living my life for Him. Paul continues in verse 22 to verse 24. He says this, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul was actually struggling with this choice. Paul says, I want to remain here on earth to carry on my earthly mission because it will bear much fruit, verse 22. But I also want to be with Christ. I want to leave this earth to be with Christ because I love Him so much, verse 23. 
I can't wait to be with him. I want to be with him. You can feel the intimacy that Paul has with Christ. This is a man who walks with him, who loves him with all of his heart. And he loved Christ so much, he so wanted to be with him. When I go to conferences and speak at conferences, I often ask the congregation this. I ask them to raise their hands, those who would like to go to heaven. If you would like to go to heaven, would you raise your hand? I would ask them. And, and almost everyone raises their hand. I mean, who doesn't want to go to heaven? If I ask the question, who wants to go to hell? No one would raise their hand. But I ask them, who wants to go to heaven? Everyone raises their hand. And then I follow up with this question. Who wants to go to heaven now? Everyone kind of puts down their hand. Why? Because if you want to go to heaven now, that means you have to die. But why not? Why not? Do you not believe that it's better to be with Christ? Do you not believe that heaven is so amazing? But the reality is many of us don't believe the truths of the Scripture. That's why we cannot have the perspective to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because for us, death is a loss. No one wants to die now. But Paul had such intimate fellowship with God. He walked with Christ. His mindset was about Him. So he could not wait to be with Him. And so that, that, that's why there's a tension, there's a struggle. Should I remain here? Or my desire to be with Christ. And yes, I know. I've said death and dying a lot this morning. And it's Chinese New Year Sunday. I've crossed the taboo line. That's why I didn't wear a white shirt this morning. Is it so wrong to speak about death on Chinese New Year? Of course not. If it is superstitious to you, then I'm sorry to have brought bad luck to you this year. But if it's superstitious to you, then perhaps you better re-examine what you believe. Because for a believer, death is to be celebrated. The time of our departure from this earth is in the hands of God. You will not go a moment sooner or a moment later than the time God has appointed for you. So talking about it, mentioning it, does not bring its quick onset. Death is to be celebrated. You know, I've told my wife this. If she lives longer than I do, when my time is up, I want my funeral to be a celebration. I want funny stories told about me. I want there to be laughter. I want wherever I'm buried, and if you live longer than me, I want you to have laughter. I want you to show the world that you are happy for me, that I'm with my Lord. And I really mean that. Yes, I hope you'll miss me. But it's a celebration because I get to be with my Savior. Do you have that tension, my friends? Do you live with the tension of wanting to, to be with Christ but also realizing that I have work here to be done. Because unless you don't have, unless you have that tension, 
then you do not have the mindset geared towards joy in pain and suffering. You cannot say, as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the perspective we are to have, to find joy in times of trials and tribulation. Paul acknowledged that it is better to be with Christ, but in verse 24, he knew the Philippians needed to be encouraged more. And so he placed the needs of the church above his own desire. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, he says. At the end of the day, it's not Paul's choice. The timing of his homegoing is up to God. But regardless of when it would be, Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It only gets better. For Paul, it doesn't matter what happens to him circumstantially. It's going to get better. The attitude that says, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? If it's death, then I'm going to joyfully embrace it. I have nothing to fear. Man can't do anything to me. Paul says, I live with the perspective that if today is my last day, it's going to be the best day of my life. If I were to ask you what would be the best day of your life, and you'll tell me your birth, you'll tell me your wedding day, you'll tell me the day your first child was born. But you know, believers, my friends, the best day of your life should be the day you die. And it is the best day of your life because it is the day you get to meet your Savior. Oh, that's a hard thing to accept. It's a hard thing to swallow. But for Paul, the best day of his life will be the day he dies. A few years ago, I read in a newsletter the following testimony of a young man in Japan who lived 400 years ago who was martyred for his faith. On February 15 of 1597, 26 Christians were executed in Nagasaki. Among them was a young 17-year-old boy named Thomas Kosaki. He was to die for his Christian witness along with his father. He wrote a letter to his mother that evening before his crucifixion. And, and yes, in the 1500s, the Japanese crucified Christians. He writes this in his letter to his mother the eve of his death. He says, Mother, we are supposed to be crucified tomorrow in Nagasaki. Please do not worry about anything because we will be waiting for you to come to heaven. Everything in the world vanishes like a dream. Be sure you never lose the happiness of heaven. Be patient and show love to many people. Mother, I commit you to the Lord. When I read that, I was greatly moved. Here is something a man wise beyond his age has written. A man of great maturity, and yet he is only 17, barely living life, and to write with such spiritual depth and maturity to comfort his own mother at his own death. I can only imagine what young Thomas's reception would have looked like when he went to heaven that February 15th of 1597. But I love the line in which he writes, Be sure you will not lose the happiness of heaven. Mother, never lose the happiness of heaven. 
the Christian world has lost its joy because it has forgotten the happiness of heaven. It's forgotten the joyous reunion we will have with the Savior and with all those who have gone before us. We have forgotten the place that God has prepared for us. We have forgotten what He has promised in His Word. We have forgotten the happiness of heaven. And that's why we walk around so afraid and insecure about that final day on earth. Life is not about pain and suffering. Life is not really even about death and life. It's about the way you live your life. Death and suffering will come at any age. But it is a life that is lived to its fullest in the will of God. Live for Him that is a life without regret. You see, when a person faces the possibility of his death and demise, his real value comes out. Paul understands that he could be martyred at any time for his faith. And therefore, his value came out. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is my perspective on life. What a fine example. It's about Christ. It's about Him. It only gets better in death. Have you forgotten the happiness of heaven? Have you lost it? Regained it? Think about it. Think about such things, the Bible tells us, so that we can find joy in times of trouble and suffering. There's a wonderful song we sing in this church. It's written by a woman named Esther Kerr in 1941. Esther suffered ill health for many years, the latter years of her life in agonizing pain. And she died at the young age of 53. In the most difficult time of her suffering while on earth, she penned the words to this wonderful song. You know the words. She writes this. Of times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur in despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I wonder if Esther writes this song to encourage herself. I wonder if Esther writes this song in, in the moments of hardship and she's telling herself, Esther, bravely run the race. When you see his face, one glimpse of it, all sorrow will be erased. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be worth it all. The joy for those who are suffering is looking forward to the promise of heaven. The promise of seeing Christ. So I love speaking on the topic of eschatology and of heaven because I too am challenged and, and moved. Heaven is not a place I imagine. It's not a made-up place so that people like me can feel good and for me to tell you to feel good. Heaven is a real place. 
Heaven is a place that God Himself, in the inerrant Word, the Scripture, tells us, this is your blessed hope. This is where you find your encouragement. This is where you find your joy. Can you live with the perspective of Paul? For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Between verse 24 and verse 25, somehow Paul, perhaps him being a lawyer, thinks about the case that is lodged against him. And he says, you know what? This case against me is pretty weak. Or perhaps between verse 24 and verse 25, God gives him a special revelation. But Paul says, I am pretty confident that my time is not yet up. I'm confident, Philippians, that I'm going to see you again. And the statements uh, in the Pauline epistles, as well as the writing of the early church fathers, seem to support this. History seems to tell us that Nero, Nero released Paul from his first Roman imprisonment in 62 AD. The apostle continues his missionary endeavors and returns to Macedonia, for for sure he would visit Philippi, the first church established in Europe. But six years later, the Romans would arrest him again, imprison him a second time, and execute him as a martyr in 68 AD. But if history is true... Paul did contribute to the spiritual progress and joy of the Philippians as he had hoped he could. But in verses 25 to 26, Paul says, Philippians, this is what is going to make it worthwhile for me. This is what is going to make my life worth living. He says in verse 25 and 26, my life is worth living when I see that you are growing in Christ. Paul says, I can deal with my present suffering and pain. It's okay, and I'll I'll live longer, but I want to make sure that I see my spiritual children grow in the faith. Remember, Paul wasn't married. He didn't have any children. These were his spiritual children. He loved them very much. He says, I hope to see you again. And when I do see you, or when I hear reports about you, it brings me great joy. It makes my life worth it. When I see that you are growing spiritually. So often parents come to me and tell me that they work hard to take care of their children and their grandchildren. And that's part of our heritage and our culture. Our parents work till they're many years old, working to make sure that their children never have to work. Working so hard to make sure that their grandchildren never have to work. Working super hard to make sure their great-grandchildren never hurt work. And all that time while they're working hard, their children, their grandchildren, or their great-grandchildren are simply enjoying life. But no matter to these parents, so it will be worth it to them. When these children grow up, what happens? They ignore their parents. They don't remember their hard work. They don't appreciate it. They tell me in both they, 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 they don't they don't remember. And these parents say it's not worth it. 
Wow. For a parent to say it's not worth it, then what will make it worth it? Why do you work so hard? Why do you live this life? If not to see your spiritual legacy pass on to the second, third, and fourth generation. Paul didn't care how much fame and fortune the Philippians had. He simply wanted them to be growing in Christ. And I hope that is what's going to make your life worth living. As you with joy continue to see your children and your grandchildren grow in the Lord. And so to make sure of this, Paul in verses 27 to verse 30 repeats the goal and the perspective which he has. So that these Philippian Christians can understand what it means to find joy in times of pain and suffering. Look at verse 27 with me. Paul writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul restates his goal. He says, regardless of my death or whether my, I am released, I want to make sure you Philippian Christians are living your life for the glory of God. That should be your goal. That should be your purpose in life. Paul uses the term, let your conduct be worthy. That in the Greek has the idea, be a good citizen. Now, you have to understand why citizenship was so special to the Philippians. Philippi was in Macedonia. The people of Macedon were not granted automatic Roman citizenship, something highly prized, something you cannot buy. But because of the loyalty of Philippi to Rome, the Romans made Philippi a Roman colony, and therefore the people of Philippi its citizens. The Philippians would walk around with great pride because they were Roman citizens. They treasured it. They lived outstanding lives to bear the name of Romans. But here Paul reminds them, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your citizenship be something of a greater citizenship, that of heaven. Paul was reminding them, Christians, you are also a citizen of heaven. Do you stand firm with such similar pride? The question can also be asked of you. Are you a good citizen of heaven? You're a citizen of this country or of another country. But what about the citizenship of heaven of which all of you have a part? Do you, do you treasure it? Do you love being a citizen of heaven? Because if you treasure it, you will live for the glory of God in all that you do. You will take pride in it. I live for the glory of God, not of men. And now he repeats the perspective, verse 28 to 30. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from Christ. For you, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. 
Paul says, be courageous in the midst of opposition. Be courageous in the midst of persecution. Because as you live those experiences, the joy that is evidenced out of your life is proof that your God is great. Do you ever think about that? When we go through times of pain and suffering, if there is joy in our hearts, it is a proof, an evidence, the Bible tells us in verse 28, that our God is good and our God is great and our God does the impossible. Paul says, don't be surprised. Verse 29, when you become a Christian and that your problems don't all go away. We've got some notion somehow that when we know Christ, when we walk with Christ, that poof, our, our problems all go away. Or as the prosperity gospel folks believe, God will definitely give you material blessings. My friends, underline verse 29. For it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Paul is very clear. Suffering is a part of life. Pain is a part of life. Suffering is not accidental. It's not punishment. It's a part of life. We will all go through it this year. But it's even a sign of God's favor. How can suffering be a sign of God's favor? Because it gives you the opportunity to discover joy. Few Christians view suffering as a blessing, but it really is. You see, suffering is one of the tools God uses to mold His children to be vessels for His glory. It's a way to prune us. It's a way to mold us. So that we can be vessels for his glory. Did you ever notice that those who have suffered much often are those who walk very closely with Christ? Did you ever notice that those who've gone through great pains in their life have a deep intimacy with God like no other knows? Because suffering is a tool that God uses for us to bring glory to him. Even in the perfect example of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered so that we might have salvation to the glory of God. So Paul implores them, have the same mindset as me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is great because I get to serve Christ and to die is wonderful because I get to be with Him. With that sort of mindset, Life indeed is joyful in times of pain and suffering and even death. Margaret Sangster Fipton wrote that in the mid-50s, her father, British minister W.E. Sangster, began to notice some uneasiness in his throat and a dragging in his leg. When he went to the doctor, he found out that he had an incurable disease that led to progressive muscular atrophy. His muscles would gradually waste away, his voice would fail, and his throat would soon become unable to swallow. Sangster could not go on the mission field as he had so hoped. And so he threw himself into the work of British missions, 
figuring he could still write and he could have more time for prayer. He pleaded with the Lord, Lord, let me stay in the struggle so that I can serve you. Allow me to suffer so that I can serve you. God granted that to him. Sangster wrote articles and books. He even helped organize prayer groups all throughout England. When people would come to him and, and, and pity him and say, Oh, Pastor Stangster, what a terrible experience you are going through. He would reply, I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. Love that. I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. What a great perspective. Gradually, Sangster's legs became useless. His voice went completely. But he could still hold the pen, although shakily. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, Sangster wrote a letter to his daughter. In it, he writes this. Daughter, it is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. It's terrible to wake up on an Easter morning and have no voice to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. I look this morning at a great congregation. I look at people with two good hands who some are not willing to use it for God. I look at people here with two feet who are not willing to move an inch for God. I look here before me people who have a great voice who are not willing to shout out, He is risen. I look at people here this morning whose fears of influence is so great, and yet they are not willing to be a testimony. This man has it right. It's more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. What then is your perspective? What then is the mindset that you have? Can you say, as Paul says, with all conviction, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? The fact that God chooses to love the unworthy like you and me should change the perspective of how we live and die for Him. My friends, I don't know what you're going through this morning in your family's life. I don't know what's in your heart and what your heart so desires but cannot have. I'm sure there is pain. I'm sure there's loss. I'm sure there is suffering. And I know there's been death in your family. I don't know what you're going through. And I hate it when people tell me, oh, I know what you're going through. And I want to tell them, no, you don't. You don't know what I'm going through. And so I will not say that to you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how hard it is. I don't know your struggles. But you're going through something. I don't know the depth of your pain, but you must be hurting. But let me just tell you, my friends, there is joy. There will be joy. There is joy. If you can acknowledge that the pain you go through 
even though unbearable and you don't understand it, is for the glory of God. If God so chooses you to go through pain and suffering, are you okay with it? Are you okay with it? I never said this was an easy lesson. Joy in suffering is probably one of the hardest Christian lessons to ever learn, and I am continually learning this. But if you have the life goal of living your life for the glory of God, and you have the perspective of for you living as Christ and dying as a gain, then you will see joy in times of pain and suffering. I do not have a top 10 list for how you can find joy because any top 10 list, any five suggestions, five application points is simply creating an artificial joy in your life. But the depth of joy that you have in times of suffering and pain is a depth of joy that cannot be explained. But once you taste it, once you experience it, Oh, it is wonderful. I have tasted that joy because God has brought me through great suffering. And that joy is beautiful. It's beautiful. Never exchange it for the world. I hope you will all experience it. I close with the story of Luther Bridges. Luther Bridges was born in 1884. He was married and had three sons. In the year 1910, he accepted an invitation to speak at a conference, a church conference in Kentucky. And so he left his family in the care of his father-in-law, and he made the trip to Kentucky. Oh, those two wonderful weeks in Kentucky where God was mightily at work. People were coming to know Christ. People's lives were changed. The last service closed with great joy and he was so excited to call home and tell his wife all about what God had done these two weeks. He couldn't wait to tell his wife about all of the blessings he has experienced. But when he called home, it wasn't her voice on the other line. He listened in silence when a voice told him of the news that a fire had burned down the house of his father-in-law and his wife and his three sons had all died in the blaze. Crushed his spirit. But in that time of sadness, as he traveled back home, this distraught man reached out to Jesus and he penned these words, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing Keeps me singing as I go. You know the words to this song. You know the first line. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. We often sing that song and we think it's of a, a man dancing through the prairies at, at the pinnacle of his life and, and full of happiness. It's written by a man who lost his wife and his three children. How can a man like that who experienced such pain and loss write such a song such as that? 
only a man who knows what true joy is. Is there in your heart a melody this morning? Can you sing of the goodness of God in your life, whatever you're going through? If not, you can find it in Jesus today. For there is no joy in life apart from Jesus Christ. There is none. All other joys are temporary and they are artificial. When you find the joy of Christ in your life, then your heart will always sing the song, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be reminded through your word of the joy you give us through Christ in times of pain and suffering. The Asian world begins this year looking for prosperity and blessing. They do so in upside-down Chinese characters. They do so in the color red. They do so in the eating of fish and of noodles and other sweet things. But they have forgotten the source of joy. Joy comes from a relationship with you. Joy comes from a life lived for you as you journey by our side. Joy comes when we live our lives for your glory's sake. Let us leave a mark on this earth. The five minutes in the lifetime of our journeying with others, let us leave the glory of Christ in their life through our interaction. And may it be for each person here this morning, one day they will be able to say with all confidence and all assurance and all conviction for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. In Jesus' name we pray.